Oh. Can you think of any other pro-life anthem in the 90s besides that? To Zion? Dang, I never thought about it like that. I'm, there, are, there are probably thousands of babies that were born that wouldn't have been born if it weren't for that song. Bro, I never thought about that. Love that song. You know, this is a, the reason I bring this up is because, hold on one second, let me grab my books. And this crazy poem you got me reading. What the heck? Marcante. People don't even know. So this right here, this is 25 years, bro. I think today is marking the 25th year of of this album. Easy. Okay. Oh, this is that. But you were saying your daughter got you this, this LP. Yeah. So this was for my birthday this year. I got the Miseducation of Lauren Hill LP and the food and the the Fuji's LP. Oh, the Fuji's. Such Bro. a good dude. It's the the production in that. It's still surprising. Like it's that that was so next level at the time that now it still feels fresh. Like, yeah. How many I, years later? I don't know. Of well, I think Lauren Hill did what she did. Total two albums. The one was the Un- Lauren Hill Unplugged, which I always think about that album because I I saw an artist die on stage. Um, that hurt my heart. I don't know if you ever watched that. The MTV show, Lauren Hill Unplugged. It was, um, Lauren Hill was a voice of a generation. I mean, just, uh, she was our Whitney Houston in one sense. Like she was, and we had Whitney Houston, but she was different. From from Sister Act on. Yeah. Well, I remember her before Sister Act, right? So I was. What did she do before Sister Act? Uh, just her music. She was doing music before Sister Act. Oh man, I I didn't even know that. Yeah, and so um, when she when you saw her on Sister Act and she did the uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow, you were like, "Yep, I mean, yeah, exactly." Her and the other I can't remember the other girl's name she did it with, but she was talented too, vocalist as well. But uh, I was in, and then she came out with the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, and I remember not really paying attention to the album when it came out, and I was acting at the time, and I went to an actors party, and the music that was playing in the background, very seldom does music grab my soul. And she just in the background, I was like, what is what? Yeah. What are we listening to? Yeah, this is amazing. And then she just took every Grammy, you know, she took, she took it all. And I was just like, man. And then I was looking for her second album. Never came out. Never. It, it never really, she only she put it all in one album. I think that was it. Came out with Lauren Hill Unplugged, and she was just hurt. She was just yeah. hurt. I remember her singing on stage, and it wasn't even her voice wasn't the same. Her attitude, they had broke the industry had broken the her. Industry had take taken advantage of her so significantly. Yeah. And, and she didn't have any sort of you know boundaries about it either. She wasn't, uh, you know, 
her, she, she was showing up late on concerts and events and sometimes wouldn't show at all. So she did, she wasn't, you know, helping, um, <laughs> you know, she didn't say, Hey, you know what, maybe I should take control of this. Like all of the, the hip hop movement started saying, we want control of our own. Like we're going to take control of our own music. Yeah. Our own she didn't, she never jumped on. She did that for this album, which, so she left. I think she was doing some stuff with the Fugees and she left and went over to Jamaica then recorded over in Jamaica. Um, and so uh, I think it was Jamaica. I think it was Jamaica. And then came back. But so her sound, like, so she took control of this album. But all of that, maybe the fighting, the fussing of the back and forth just was enough that it crushed her. But I was right before we got, before we were about to start, I was looking at um, the uh, the news and it's saying 25 years since Miseducation of Lauren Hill came out. Yep. Lauren Hill, Miseducation, nearly 25 years later. Wow. And yeah, they said arguably one of the most talented artists in the last 25 years. I, I, I yes, I think so too. I saw to my wife, um, you're just too good to be true. Yeah. <laughs> on our wedding, on our wedding day when we're coming, we're leaving, and I'm singing that song to her after we just got Mr. and Mrs. David Shannon. I walked back down the aisle singing that song to her. <laughs> and Lauren Hill was a huge part of it. But I well, was, my all time favorite music video is that thing. That thing, that thing, that thing. Yeah. That, that music video, because it cuts back and forth between the neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 60s and the 90s. Just seamless, it's gorgeous. And it's a warning, too. You better watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about, about yeah. <laughs> yeah, that thing. And she goes back and forth. Like this, back in the 90s, you could do this where she warns the guys and she warns the girls. Like, look, both of y'all need to look out. There's a per there's there's a kind of guy, there's a kind of girl that's gonna destroy you. It's it's proverbial. And then it's it um but the 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 lyrics are proverbial. Um, you know, it's like old time wisdom. Yep. And then they, they're taking the old time music uh, style yep. and modernize it because they're also taking that old time wisdom and pulling it into the present. Like it works as a work of art because the poetry and the music all are doing the same thing, working in the same direction. Yeah. So you end up with like four horses on the front of your cart and you can go really fast. Um, you know, that was actually something that hip hop was doing in the beginning. And in this weird era around kind of the nineties or so, it started not doing it anymore. It switched into something else, but it started with that kind of that jazz sound too, mm -hmm. taking jazz and, Actually, it was taken from a lot of different genres, symphony, classical, all that stuff. And yeah. Neo Soul really was the one that started lyrically taking that old, those old songs, that old sound. And that's why I think Kanye West was so important because Kanye yeah. took the music and the sound and then this new irreverent <laughs> attitude and brought it all back together with. So when he spit through the wire, like yeah. everybody, everybody. That was on College Dropout, right? Uh, I can't remember. I, I think was, it was. Yeah, I think it was college dropout. Yeah, I think that, that was the first one. That, yeah, that that whole album is so good. But yeah, through the wire. Oh man, the, yeah, it's 
it actually has poetic layers. Um, nobody was doing that anymore, right? The um, right, yeah. So right, everything post like I love G Funk when it comes to the beats, but the poetry is thin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You and you didn't, and in the the all the the older stuff, the um, you had the the layered poetry. But the G Funk came in and it was just like, like I respect Ice Cube as a businessman, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have the layers of poetry that, <laughs> that you had in the earlier hip hop. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but I mean, you didn't have it in a lot of that stuff that kind of hit the market, like um, MC Hammer, Will Smith. Uh, that but there was a whole there was an undergirding in that early hip hop with really good poetry that didn't necessarily always translate into the um you know, like Rock Kim, you're talking about those kind of guys. Yeah, Rock Him and um well and I mean you, you, the tribe called Quest. Yeah. Um a lot of that stuff that was just, I mean, it was just before kind of the West coast G funk revolution, I think turned everything into gangster rap or turned it all, you know, um, rather, you know, and I mean, I love a lot of that G funk stuff. I mean, I love those beats and the production of it, but there's, you can't go around saying, you know who was a great poet, the Snoop Dogg. <laughs> the way that you can with a lot of the like, um, a lot of the the other guys that had layers. Even the Beastie Boys had layers to their yeah that's stuff. True. And so, oh, but then you know, um, Kanye and Jay Z both they brought that layered poetry back into the mainstream. Jay Z, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, because it disappeared into the in, it, it was always still there, but it just went back underground. Because you got uh, yeah, yeah, Black yeah. Star and and you got all, uh, Most Deaf, and the, it, it was always there. Um, that East Coast neo group saved a lot of music in the kind of urban music, you know, yeah. in hip hop. I, I really like, you know, that whole East Coast group. I, I mean, whether you, I mean, even um, I mean, he's not the best poet, but as far as production. Uh, um, oh, I see the two faces. I'm thinking of Timbaland, the Neptunes, and Neptunes. Yes, yeah. Neptunes. You know they, there was a respect there with the Neptunes. I think still for some of that, which is why he's still around, stays around. Yeah, right. To this day, even though like, if you watch his masterclass, anybody with a Mac Air can do everything that he used to do, and. <laughs> get paid millions for yeah with your cell phone you could do what he used to do uh, but he's he, still around because he he does have that that uh musical knowledge that connection of where he's at and drawing drawing stuff into the present from the past and hey i was thinking about this if you had to think okay it's a couple things i was thinking about first of all what the heck kind of poem did you send me messiah christmas portions what is my, this? Some, some mark Dottie. did you read it yeah i read it i don't know what i read though <laughs> i have no idea you know okay a couple things i, I kind of want to start here is there a 
you know, you look back and you say, oh man, uh, poets of old, you got Dante, you know, um, who is in the last hundred years, you think we got a, a Christian poet that's worth noting that is like, well, I mean, I think you, you, you have Tolkien. He, there's a lot of poetry in his works and, um, C.S. Lewis published poetry. His poetry is not all necessarily great. There's some good ones in there. Um, but, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton, his poetry is really, really good. I like it a lot. Um, These are guys think, that come to my mind. I think of, when you said Lewis and Tolkien, I thought of, oh, man, those are good fictional writers who are influenced by poetry. And so you can see poetry in their works. But I can't think of like, oh, I love that that poem from G.K. Chesterton. Like that's he's not right. Yeah. Poetry. There's not a lot. I mean, you are some of our. Uh, some of the great, well, there was, there was a lot of poetry written um, that we think of as hymns that, you know, was sung the, the, in the forties and the fifties, thirties, forties, fifties. And a lot of it, I think it ended up being really influential in like bluegrass and that sort of thing. So there's some good poetry written uh, right at the same time. as like the Harlem Renaissance, um, you had other renaissances going on in the music down south and um and cuz you've got blues and jazz both kind of coming to the fore and a lot of great uh poetry gets infused into the blues and bluegrass um music but yeah the last 100 years the church has has retreated from poetry um and has said it's not our, you know, that that's somebody else's. Um, and so it's moved into the, it's sort of split into two movements. Cause you've got the uh, people, people will not live without poetry. It's just, we are too poetic of a, of a species. Um, so there's always going to be poetry. Uh, when the church retreats, it leaves the poetry um, without an integrating force because the church has always been the place where poetry ends up integrated where you've got the, the both what you think of as low or populist poetry, you know, the poetry of the people and um, high poetry uh, hold together throughout history in the church. Um, but you don't have that right now. So you've got poetry in the universities that is going a particular direction, kind of highbrow poetry. And then you've got um, what would be called lowbrow low brow poetry, populist poetry, something like that in our music rap. Um, I mean, poetry is as alive as it ever has been in mm. American culture. Um there's probably, I mean, people probably have as many poems memorized as they ever have. The difference is we carry them. We, you know, we have them in our Apple music rather than, you know, in a book or in, you know, poems that we say, or, I mean, we, we were on set, you know, um, the, it was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Almost you know, everybody yeah. knew the entire thing when we were yeah, singing that on set. So there, there are still, there, you, people are going to be filled with poetry. It's just a matter of whether or not the church is 
curating any of it for them or not. You know, so <clears throat> when we started talking, we started talking about metaphysics and um, cosmology and uh, what, was, what else was it? Metaphysics, com- cosmology, and I don't know, we talked about everything. Eschatology, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you know somehow we've moved into this area now of poetry and I don't want to think, I don't want to get lost in like, Oh, we've switched topics because I think you can feel like we've switched topics, but we really haven't switched topics. Right. Work out for me how metaphysics and poetry are actually intertwined. Yeah. So, um, cause the question in metaphysics in the cosmology, the metaphysics of cosmology, the cosmology is what kind of, place is this cosmos Mm. the study of the cosmos as a whole um the question of metaphysics there's a couple of them but one of the central ones is is it is it uh one or is it many and um if it is many does it also hold together as one right so in a christian metaphysics uh, of the cosmos that it's a the this place is an integrated unit everything fits together and the the point of integration is Jesus, so everything is related to Jesus, um, and in in and through Jesus, everything is related to everything. So th- there is a, a a unified whole that is all of creation, and um, and then um, so the whole cosmos. There's a you know a macrocosmos, all things, and then within that cosmos, there are microcosmoses there are things that are uh, that are pictures of the whole everything holds together but then there are you know living allegories or things that are pictures of the whole cosmos that we call microcosmos and the reason that 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 works and fits together is because Jesus um, he Jesus is the image of God but he's also the image of man and all things were created for him, through him, and to him. Mm. He, he's the integrating point of all things. And so, um, and then everything that's created points to him or it reflects him in some way oh, or some okay. sense. Okay, hold on. Just pause. Please don't forget what you're saying. But, you know, and what you just said, if I can just restate it, it's really part of our problem in um, in this whole thing is when you're talking about Jesus and who he is, he's God, he's made the hypostatic union. We 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 have there there is this beautiful poetic moment that's presented there. And part of our imagination is to try the way it's designed now is to try and separate these all into these separate pieces. Right. But the way that poetry works is it doesn't have to do that in order for them to be in order for them to understand the the point, multiple points. And so right. even even understanding the 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 beautiful um, the, the even understanding Christ and who He is, you have to have a poetic understanding to be able to see all these things how they work together and and not how they and not the conflict they marry together in a very harmonious way. That you, and you don't understand that apart from apart from having a poetic understanding of the world. Right. It's a, I, I call it a poetic metaphysic or something like that. Right. A, uh, There's a poetic unity to the cosmos. So here's a good example. When my youngest son was born, coming up on 13 years ago now, um, we uh, 
we we were so we were in um, Santa Cruz, California, in Santa Cruz County, um, very leftist county overall. And so we, when we were when we found out my wife was pregnant, we went to the um, pregnancy resource center, the Christian run pro life ministry, and said, "Hey, what doctors in town are pro life that don't do abortions? Right? Because we we're trying to find a doctor to deliver our baby, and there were three. Right. So in the whole mm. county that they were aware of. And so um, we got all signed up with one wonderful guy. And and um, there were two doctors they that delivered babies together. And um, when it came time for uh, Malachi to be born, um, it was right around Christmas time. And the doctor came in and and um, the it was the other partner uh, in the practice. Um, and so she came in and was delivering Malachi and uh, he's born and she's holding him. And he, and she says, I love uh, delivering babies around Christmas time because my savior became one of these, mm. right? She's holding mm. Malachi mm. who's six pounds, seven ounces. My savior became one of these, right? She, her, she delivered babies every, you know, all the time, all year long. That's what she did. And every baby was a, a picture of Jesus to her because Jesus became one, right? That's a poetic understanding of the image of God in man, a poetic understanding of history, right? That you, because it doesn't make understanding that doesn't mean that Malachi is somehow the hypostatic or you know something like that it's it's he's a he's a picture he's both his own person and he's a poetic image of jesus just like every single baby is right because jesus Mm. was incarnate as a baby um so there there's a poetic unity uh but it it takes that ability to see something as two things at once or multiple things at once um and that's why reading Dante for me regularly has been so helpful is because Dante says everything in the poem works on four levels. It all has four meanings at once. Right. And he doesn't explain it. He just says, that's my intention. He intended everything to always have four meanings. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so if that is the kind of world we live in, and I need to exercise that faculty uh, to be able to see reality for what it is. Then poetry is one of the central ways that we exercise that faculty to see reality for what it is, uh, because reality really does have does say multiple things at once. Mm-hmm. You know, the, everything in creation does. The joy of my world is in Zion. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But that's such a great line because um, she named her daughter her son Zion yeah and that uh, and she's also talking about God and God's people gathered right Zion mm-hmm. where where it is that God um, became uh, or meets meets with his people which is yep. Zion and which is Jesus right Jesus right. is Zion because you say well he he says tear this temple down I'll rebuild it in three days right the temple is his body. And 
we are his body. We are the temple. We are the living stones. And the temple was the temple in the Old Testament. There was a physical place that meant all those things as well. Right. So what um, and then on top of that, the temple is a picture of the cosmos because the temple is also it has the the seven the seven uh, lampstands because there's seven planets in the sky. It it has the um, the 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 uh, you know priests wear blue because they're floating through the sky. Um, <laughs> You just made that one up. up. I'm not buying that one. (laughs) I believe that's true. I don't know if I could prove it outside of a poetic. Well, I do know. Well, one of the things that anchored that helped me think through this is um, the fact that I can't remember who said this, but I found it from reading it when the tabernacle is being designed and built. It was built based off of the vision that Moses had of the heavens. And yeah, then he would right. go back and to build the tabernacle off that model, right? And so, yeah, that that's not – so if that's there and that's a reality, then we need to be wondering how all of that points to, in one way or another, that compares that imagery and the poetry that's there inside of it, you know? And he uh, and the book of Hebrews tells us that it's a picture – that it, it's it's a shadow of the heavens. Right. Right. It, you know, it's a portable, the tabernacle was sort of a portable Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, which was God making his presence known on earth. The well, heavenly that- place. Yeah. There, it's, it's because it's, it's an unfolding story of poetic significance. It's all going back to the, this is, I'm telling you, man, if everybody and their mama can get paradise restored, everybody and their mama it, needs to get this. Do you know if it's back in print? It was out of print. I, I You know what? We need to demand it. Tell I think Uncle Gary's yeah. supposed to be bringing it back into print. I did find another, yeah, I think it's back in print because I found this, I got from Uncle Gary. This is the original. Okay. Um, And there's another version that I have that's like a paperback. So I know it's back in print. Okay. It's back in print. <laughs> Excellent. Because I had a photocopy of it back in the day. You got a photocopy of everything. I know. Well, guy like I could never afford books, so I was photocopying everybody else's books. The what David Shilton does, and I think ultimately it's probably James Jordan at the in the back of it, is just start I think to. They like, worked. I think they worked a lot of the things out together. weren't they friends at the time? I I didn't know that. Probably. I think so. I think they kind of worked it out, but I don't really know. I just vaguely remember hearing. I think Yuri Brito tell me that. Uh, that makes sense. He would know. I um. After going through Paradise Restored, I haven't finished it yet. I'm just going through this kind of how to read prophecy, and he goes to the garden. I realize that I don't know how to read my Bible because I don't know how to read poetry. Now, I'm not saying I don't understand a lot of the I understand a lot of my Bible. But then when I went back and read Paradise Restored, the way that he walks through the details that I skip over as if like, oh, that's just there is good to know. It's almost like yeah. I treat it like an author who's describing, I don't know, um, an uh, 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 author who's describing a room in a book. Cool. You just want me to believe that I'm in the room, 
right? You want right. me, to, yeah. You want me to come into this room and then just like, oh yeah, I can feel the room so that I can experience the main thing that happens in the room. That's how I was reading Genesis, right? I was reading Genesis like an author who was like, hey, there's this room and it has these checkered walls on it, you know? And then in the back, there's this blanket across the top with a white ceiling roof. And, and so I'm reading Genesis and the whole story like, okay, that's really cool. Great. I have a good idea of kind of how the garden was. And the main story is Adam's sin. And there's going to be a restoration of the garden. Got it. And so when I went back and was reading Shelton, it was he was like connecting the rubies and the the diamonds and all the wealth and the colors back to um the priest uh when they were given the law and when they were given how to do sacrifices and how the priest dressed and why he wasn't to wear any sort of wool that would make him sweat because right was part of the curse right and so they had linen uh that they wore it was like what and they the rubies that were on his his head was to remind them of the garden and everything that you saw uh, that was repeated, you know, on how the priests operated and how sacrifices were done. And even the children of Israel coming out of Egypt inside of this wasteland. And yet there was water and yet there was food and there was this canopy over and then there was heat. They were in a type of garden in the middle of the wilderness. And he just goes through and breaks down what the garden was and the repetition of the garden um, over and over in scripture of God being with his people. And this is what it looks like when God is with his people. This is where the garden is. And you see this. Right. The substance of all those shadows, the poetic substance of even the Garden of Eden is God's presence. Right. all it's the same way you know, when a monarch comes in and you could talk about. Uh, the crown, you know, the crown came, the crown sat down, the crown spoke. Mm -hmm. There's a poetic substance that means the king or the queen um, in that when you when you talk about the crown, well, all of and all of the garden is has that kind of relationship. It's it has a poetic relationship to God in which the substance of it all points to God without losing its own independent existence because it's a poetic uh, substance, but it, it, we don't understand. We, we don't know enough. We don't, ha we don't exercise that, um, that understanding often enough to even be able to take in how much glory there is in the scriptures. Yeah, because that's, you know, because when you think about Calvinism, then you should look at that and be like, oh, that's beautiful. Right. Like, right. you know, because you can but see we, that. Go ahead. We, even our understanding of sovereignty, we have ended up like the way that we tend to understand sovereignty comes down to how God interacts with me at the center of the world. <laughs> Explain like, that. Yeah. I mean, it, you think of how when when sovereignty comes up, it's because something terrible happens, and we say, "Well, God is sovereign." All right. Um, right so right. my this difficulty that I'm going through, it must have some sort of mysterious purpose out beyond there that's about me, right? Because sovereignty turns out to be about me <laughs> in in mm. our understanding, um, rather than understanding sovereignty and providence um, to mean 
God has a plan to glorify Jesus. Um, and I'm, mm. I'm, I get to be a part of that, right? I get to share in that because I turn out, cause I'm part of the choir. I'm part of the, part of the purpose. I'm, I'm part of the, um, the, the, the two, I'm, you know, I'm in God's tool bag. I'm in the symphony, man, huh? I'm in the symphony. Yeah. But the, the purpose of it all is to glorify Jesus. And, um, you know, when you get to be in a symphony and play some, play an amazing piece of music, you know, I, I, I remember I was, um, played percussion, in the all Northwest, uh, for the all Northwest choir in, when I was in high school and it was, you know, four States, the best voices from four high school, four States of high school choirs. And we were singing Osifuni Mungu, um, which is a, an African song, um, that is praise the father, praise the son, praise the spirit three in one. It's this beautiful Christian African, um, piece. And I was in the African, drum group that played percussion in support of the choir and getting to be a part of this amazing choir performance that moved people, you know, that had people um, up on their feet. Right. I, I didn't have a solo. I didn't have uh, anything like that. I was just playing in Gakwe bells and, but you get to the end of it and being a part of the, that choir performance still, was a artistic highlight when I think back through cool things I've gotten to do um, because it moved people so much. Well, how much more the fact that we get to be a part of the symphony of all creation that is going to be mm. praising and glorifying Jesus at the end of all things. Um, we, we don't have, most of us don't have that kind of experience. And so we don't even get how good of a gift that is, how great no, of a gift that is. No, and actually the whole thing is actually centered around us as if we're the most important part of this. The reason I wanted to bring up metaphysics and poetry is because I think part of what I've started to realize, man, I've been, I, I'm starting to realize that the, a couple different things. Um, we were talking about 9-11 yesterday and, I was just really shocked at how much that has time has passed since 9-11. So much so that we have people who are now of the drinking age who didn't really know what was going on. And some people who were born even before 9-11. So you got, if you were born in that year, you know, you're 20 years old, 21 years old, right? If you were born five years before that, it still doesn't have any sort of effect on you. Eight years before that, you, you might have some sort of semblance of what was going on, but really not much. Um, when 9-11 happened, I was 20. Yeah. So <clears throat> the people now who are post 9-11 are just where I was when it happened. They don't know anything about it. And so they come into the story not knowing the world that 9-11 made for them to live in. Right. They have no concept of it. And so they're living in this world that 9-11 has prepared for them and they don't even know what the world was like even before 9-11. So there was like this world before 9-11 in America. And then this happened, changed the whole world. And then I started thinking about, oh man, that's really interesting because Pearl Harbor happened. Mm -hmm. That was huge. You know, that happens in the 40s. So that's 40 years before I get here, right? Uh, before I'm born. 
And the whole world, America was different after that. The way we thought about everything was different. There's huge moments in American history that we don't even, well, you go back before that and you got the, you know, the first world war, early 1900s, right? And that had an effect. And you keep you keep going back, and after a while, you start realizing there's this huge story that's been going on before you got here that we haven't ever read or taken part of, um, and uh, we're ignorant to right, so much right. of American literature, world history, world literature, um, that we are just kind of being moved where we want to in this story. And so, you know, since we've been talking, it's been like, okay, I need to go back and that that journey I've, I've told on the show, I'm going to make my kids every summer do 20 years before they got here, what was going on in the world. And then right. before that, do 40 years uh, after. So the first summer is the 20 years. After that, you're going to do 20 more years. What's the 40 years before you got here? What's the 60 years before you got here? And I'm just keep going back until they get, you know, kind of a full, robust American history. Uh, and And then Western literature, we're going to go into that. We'll probably do a jump or so. And so the, as I've been going through and hitting back, I'm starting to realize that there were a lot of things lost before I ever entered the world from a, even just Western literature, like guys right, like right. Dante, Chaucer, uh, Shakespeare, who we get so many American words from that we don't even know about. We have no idea that these guys lent us our dialect our dialogue, right, how right. we talk, communicate, even identify body parts were from these men. And so like what the world was like before them. Well, I'm going back and back and back and I'm realizing, man, we don't have this short span of American history anywhere in our catalog. So then we don't know how to read the times. And then if that's the case, how illiterate are we when it comes to biblical history? And understanding what was going on then in that time in the world. And so as I've been reading that five-foot bookshelf, there's the opening book where it starts laying out everything that's inside of the uh, Harvard classics. Yeah, And he starts breaking down in this book kind of this, we have, he says, roughly a 3,000-year uh, understanding of literature because we trace it all the way back to the beginning, really, in Homer. That's kind of where our first pieces of literature come from was yeah. from Homer. And he's like, we have kind of, you know, tethered pieces of, you know, history from here, a little writing from there. But as far as like a real robust literary understanding, you kind of have to start at Homer and then work your way up to now. And then he starts at Homer and then he starts, Homer comes in and you have, you know, the Greeks and then you have Rome. Then you have these Christians right in the middle of this, these Jews right in the middle yeah. of it. I said it right the first time. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that are that are that are taking place right in the same era and all of a sudden everything in my head shifted and I'm like whoa there's a lot that God is doing through time and history from that point up until now that that I didn't know contributed to our understanding of the world and so in order for me to understand kind of the, the metaphysical cosmology that we're talking about, I'm realizing how much I need to know about our history to understand even the poetry that I'm trying to engage in. Right. And so yeah. I, I just wanted to, I, you know, part of it for me was not to forget what kind of journey that we have been on as we've been talking, like we are still talking about metaphysics. We are still right. talking right. about cosmology. Um, and but 
but poetry is the way that our metaphysics sneak in at, to our imagination and landscape it. Yeah. So, you, yeah. so the way that we, the way that our imagination, uh, the, the way that our imagination is shaped and that our expectations are shaped by our imagination, um, that is formed through the po- through poetry and stories and music and that sort of thing. It's not really a, a series of logical mm. explanations mm. that end up forming our imagination. And our imagination is, I mean, it, it's it ends up being the limitation. What what limits or un or expands our faith our ability to imagine what God says he's going to do and then embracing it. Right. Most failures of faith begin as failures of the imagination. We can't imagine what God is promising. You're hitting hitting at a line that is in Dante Canto four. And Jason Baxter underlines it. Um, When he talks to the virtuous pagans, yeah, yeah. Um, I know this is not the way we wanted to go about doing this, but he talks <laughs> about the virtuous pagans, and he says that they didn't have an imagination of, uh, oh, what is the line he says? Oh, I got to find this line. It's so good. The and imagination were... of ecstasy was that his? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That he's, and I think he's quoting uh, Sayers about. Sayers, if I remember right, I can't remember. Yes, they didn't have the imagination of ecstasy. I got it right here. And yet, though it's over control, they are not happy. Yeah, when he talks about, he says, and yet, so this is a really con, it made me, I'm just going to jump into it. And yet, he says, and yet the sober and controlled, they are, yet though they are sober and controlled, they are not happy let alone joyful as the saints in the paradise will be. In fact, the pilgrim's first impression of the realm is that the air is con- continuously stirred by sighs. Virgil, as he enters the realm, loses all the color in his face because he returns to a land without hope. They are weighed down by knowledge that they never will be able to know or taste that ultimate goodness. It is dreams that will never be fulfilled. Is because these souls spent their whole lives pursuing goodness and truth that their sorrow is so intense, you know, because they, they, they didn't have the, they couldn't, um, uh, imagine beyond, uh, the, what they could see. And so they followed the virtue that they had, but it wasn't enough, right? They couldn't, because their imagination was stifled it in um in the purgatorio um you have a comment about about this section where it says the great the great virtuous pagans were like um men leading a uh, uh leading a a group of people but they had um a stick holding the light behind their head so it, it shined in front of them and they could see some things, but they never turned to look at the light itself. And so they, they never, their imagination never took them beyond the sun 
to what the sun represented. Yeah, he was talking about humanism. I'm trying to find the part where he's talking about humanism. Was it? Are, are you sure you're not thinking of the uh, footnotes in Sayers' edition? Oh, it might be in Sayers. That's it. Might be there. I'm. I got so much that I'm bouncing back and forth between. Yeah, I think it's in Sayers. You're right. It's Sayers' yeah. edition. Wait, good mind. The allegory is clear. It is the weakening of humanism to fall short in the imagination of ecstasy. Right. Oh. <laughs> that whole section is so incredible. This is why I like Sayers' edition is because her footnotes are just next level. You're right. I was reading both of these and it was Sayers because I haven't marked here. I was like, I know I marked it. But the imagination... It, it is the weakness of humanism to fall short in the imaginations of ecstasy. At its best, it is noble, re reasonable, and cold, however optimistic about a balanced happiness in the world. Pessimistic about a rapturous eternity. Something wistful aware that others claim the experience of this positive bliss. The humanist can neither accept it by faith, ooh, embrace it by hope, nor abandon himself to it in charity. Dante discusses the question further in the purgatory. Bro, so this is where, this is where, I know you you got another poem you want to go through, but when I read this and I started going through this with Dante, I was like, wait, is Dante talking about hell still? What is he talking, is, is, is he talking about hell still? Because this doesn't seem like hell. He's talking about, it feels like that he's talking about right now because in hell that doesn't, Yet at the same time, when you go into Canto uh, 3, he has a sign on there that says, all who enter hopeless is hopeless after this. Yeah, like, yeah, you don't right, expect yeah. any hope after here. So he's he has this reality that is that has no hope in it. Right. But right. that reality, as he talks about it, sounds more like now. Right. Well, this is what... This is this is a, you know, one of the things that he when he talks about how it's got it's it's always got four layers. Um, he mentions in that in that letter um, that he that at the center of it is it's an allegory for the present life, right? So he says that's the one I want you to make sure you don't miss. It's an allegory for the present life. So he it's a it's a story it's a fantasy story where this where you've got a pilgrim who's being led through hell by Virgil, but it's actually an allegory for this, the present life because any, and he says, and, he, and what's so funny is people will read this and say, wait, is he saying that pagans can get saved because they're in limbo and they're not really, and, but, if you miss the point that by the end of it, the reason that Virgil doesn't want to go in or he's, he's afraid to go in that he loses all the color in his face before he goes in is because of how terrible it is to exist even with virtue. If you have no hope. And that was, so that's the other thing too, is that when I was reading this, all my theological chops kicked in. Right. It really kicked in because I'm like, wait a second. You said we, we know what hell is. Hell, separation from God, punishment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like we know what hell is. Why is Dante dividing this hell up into these people who are punished? 
right, who are tortured into this hell of people who are not tortured. But he's actually not doing that. Exactly. And that's but that's our first response is we and this is this is what Dante does is it is a mirror. It's a it's a it's reveals in us our own assumptions we don't realize how torturous hopelessness is. And it's supposed to cause us to say, what are the ways in me that I'm letting hopelessness win? What are those places where I'm, I am actually not living out of faith, hope, and love because that's, that's the, um, that's Mm -hmm. what he says. The things that they can't have faith, hope, and love. He says, you can have everything else. But if you're separated from God and just don't have faith, hope, and love, that it's, he says this, uh, the, um, and this is one where it's like, if I would, if I could, if you could successfully make a movie about this, where they peek over the edge and they hear the sighings and the sighings are, it's torture to hear the sighings. They're so hopeless. Right. And um, and they sigh so much that it's like oh, this constant breeze caused by just the sighings of hopelessness. So you, you get there and that's not it's, there's not physical tortures yet. It's all just no hope, no faith, no love. Can I, can I have to jump in here because. When he was describing this. You knew you didn't want the one. So in Kanto 3, you know you didn't want to be with those guys who are getting stung right. in the face because they just didn't fight for anything, didn't have any right. care. Well, you, know, you didn't want to be those guys and getting pushed by bees and wasps because um, they were lazy. Right? You didn't, you didn't, want, you didn't yeah. want to be those guys. That's torturous. And so when he comes up to this other group of people of size, you're like, ooh, that's way better. <laughs> right. But it's right. actually worse. So you're like... If 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 there is a hell to be in, and I went here, at least I'm not bleeding and getting stung, and right. you know these clappings and screaming. Ah, I'm not. Well, I mean, this this is a way more than that. And then you get there and you realize, wait, this is nothing. Yeah, this is this is like um, <clears throat> having truth with no goodness or beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all I thought about to move this, I thought about the Republican conservative movement of today. I thought about right. people who are moral philosophers who really do get it. You're kind of Jordan Peterson's, you're Ben Shapiro's, you're all your great moral philosophers that we love that are really great guys and I appreciate their works. And, and they have some great adding to the conversation. But there is this stoic cold understanding of beauty of it all right because they don't have price there's a stoic um frozen hopelessness and you, right have you seen that video where jordan peterson breaks down crying yeah i have that's oh bro that's this right bro you ain't even lying you are not even lying. And I realized this is this is horrible. Yeah. But, but then it messed me up because um, in the line, he says, Virgil says of where I am from. Like, this is me. So Virgil is in, like Virgil's in hell. Right. Yeah. Virgil. He 
he and he, he so he's basically sent up to give a tour, but he has to stop at a certain point because he has to go back to this level of hell. So Virgil feels it too. Then mm -hmm. that's, that's why, why he, he turns he goes white because he's like, I gotta go back. Don't want to go back, but I have to. But there is some sort of comfort in Dante in going to this place to meet these philosophers and the philosophers and the poets um, because he's, he's saying, and, and this is where um, he's got a much, what you might call subtler ability to make distinctions where um, you can learn about virtues from non-Christians. <laughs> right there are virtues that there are non-christians that get a clearer vision of certain virtues than you have and you can learn from them that you what you can't gain from them is hope so here's this line where he talks about this group canto for 34 they sin not yet their merit lack the chiefest fulfillment lacking baptism which is the gateway to the faith within thou believest or living before Christendom, their knees paid, not all right, paid, not a right. Those tributes that belong to God. And I myself am one of these. Ooh, I got shivers when he said that yeah. I was like, Virgil, no Virgil, not you. And, Virgil. and, 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 you know, this, this is where you see Dante, the evangelical, um, the what? where, Dante the evangelical I mean, the, I mean where he he has he has a severely evangelistic bent all throughout um where he is trying to get people to stop and say would you fit here is this where you're going to land right would you fit here is this where you're going to land it's not enough to be the best person in your village it's not enough to be the bet you right that you, you actually have to rest in Christ. You have to love God. Um, you have to have faith. Uh, the, uh, so he, it's a, say, say it again. Do you say that part again. Do you fit here? He, Dante. Yeah, so he, right. He, he, he all along the way says, do you fit here? Right. Is this where you land? Would you land in this level of hell? Cause it's not enough to be the best person in your village. It's not enough to be um, you, you, it's, it's not enough to be, um, a, a good person, right? He's saying mm. l you weren't as good of a person as Virgil or Seneca or Cicero, you know, the, the great moral philosophers mm. of the past, um, uh, of the Roman moral philosophers, everybody holds them up and says they're great. They're great and virtuous, but every single one of them he puts here in hell, right? Um, because, it's not enough. You actually have to have faith in Jesus. So he's got this evangelistic fervor. Um, he talks about it in his letters that the exile, his exile from Florence um, transformed him to somebody that realized there's something more important than being, you know, he, he wanted to be a great Florentine politician. It transformed him saying, actually, I want to be a great evangelist. I want to be someone who, uh, who at the end of time had uh, benefited etern the eternal souls of humanity, of my of my fellow man, not just simply great at politics. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a 
there's a lot of political commentary throughout because it's not yep. a separate thing, right? The way your soul engages in politics is actually part of the way your soul um, engages with God. But um, well, because it comes out where it comes out at, like politics, where you really get to see where your level of engagement with God is at, right? And you know, like you get to see it, and and it's working. It's not. Um, it's it's what. I always tell my son when he's playing football, it's like, we're going to see him when we get on the field, what you've been practicing. Yeah. Right. So, right. so <laughs> politics is like, oh, this is what you've been practicing. Like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, there's no other way to explain this except for if that's what you do in a game. It's what you've been practicing behind and in, in your, when you're by yourself. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about this, Jason, was he finds these poets towards the light right so it, am i seeing that right so he's like he sees there's this light kind of in the distance and then he finds these um the well he finds the poets on the way towards that direction and so he finds the poets and then he finds these great minds but and there's kind of like the poets first and then these great minds and then but the, they're in the direction of the light but they're not in the light right yeah they, they can see it in the distance and that's actually part of what makes them hopeless. Right. Is they'll never get there. They can see it, but it's behind the fog, right? There, there's no way to get there. So, you know, if you were shooting this and you were, and the, you would tell the colorist, take out, you know, take out all the contrast, right? Like this is, the, there is a, um, the, he would turn the whites all the way up that sort of thing like the 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 color is gone from their uh from their vision or from their the color is gone from their life um and it's different than, you know when you get to the next level lust um and the the there's everybody's moving fast and swirling and you know there's this uh, there's a, a punishment um in not being able to stop and contemplate but there's a punishment mm-hmm. built into contemplation without faith. And that's what he always is looking for is what, what it, how is hell embedded in the sin in the present, right? How, how is hell sneaking its way into our lives mm-hmm. in, in our current sin, right? So there's a, a hopeless contemplation without faith. Okay. This is what happened with Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin. It was the, the hell was implement the very thing that these guys are trying to avoid in the transgender movement. They embrace on the other side in the homosexual movement, and the very thing is given to them that they are trying to run from, and they get the hell either way. Right they, there's because um, because it's not uh, it, sin begins the punishments of hell in the act of it. When people, when people will be like, oh man, that person, they're getting away with so much. They're look at all that sin they're committing. You're not getting away with anything. And you're not, it's not that you're not getting away with it just because someday it's going to be punished, but sin has embedded within it, the beginnings of its punishment. Right. And so, um, and that's, that's a truth that you see throughout the history of Christian thought and, you know, and in our experience, we know that, um, 
Dante's trying to explore that deeper in order to help us want to avoid sin, right? He's trying to change our desires so that we'll look and say, yeah, I don't want to commit that sin. There, I, it, It's like saying, do you want to just step into hell just a little bit? You know, well, of course we don't. Um, but hell is always, a, a, or sin is always choosing death over life. Um, the, I mean, this is why the law of God is good news because it's a description of life. It's a, um, it's it, when God comes and says, here, let me tell you how to avoid death. We don't say, oh, you're so mm. mean. You're punishing us with these laws, right? It's a, here's how to avoid death. Um, and, and that understanding of, of virtue, um, you know, that virtue separated from faith continues to be a hellish thing right you know it's, so go ahead that's the it's 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 so i mean he and he says it in such a moving way that you're like oh i'm so grateful for that conviction <laughs> you know thank you dante for stabbing me right in the gut the other thing that he does in here as he's talking about he asked Virgil, has anybody escaped this type of, um, what do you call it, uh, hopelessness, right? Is this a form of hopelessness, this consistent, perpetual form of hopelessness? Um, but, and it was it's really interesting because when you compare to being physically hopeless to mentally and emotionally hopeless, you almost prefer the physical because you can feel something. Right. Versus right. like they're like nothing. This is what makes people commit suicide and cut themselves because they can't feel, right? There is this pure hopelessness. Is that you know they have this this knowledge and then they they just can't feel anything from it. it they're numb, which is like ugh. anyway. So you kind of look and say, well, I don't know. Them wasps don't seem so bad in comparison <laughs> to not feeling anything. But then he, but then Virgil says, yes. When I first got here, there was I can't remember how he describes it, but. It, Basically, he's he's been saying there was the Holy One, you know, Christ who came and got was it David and he mentioned hey, a yeah. few. So all, basically, all the saints from before Jesus's resurrection, right? All, so he said it, all the Old Testament saints came here too because they didn't yet have Jesus, right? They had him. They so it's not the same experience for them. It was a waiting place and this is something i think just we, we we have this in the apostles creed jesus descended into hell yeah um, right we um but that it's the harrowing of hell is that what it was called doctrinally it's mostly disappeared i mean it's similar the resurrection of the dead at the end of time is disappearing from doctrine now um but the harrowing of hell is one of the other things and what that was was or what that understanding is is that people that died in Christ before uh, Jesus, um, but that had the promises of God and trusted in him. So Abraham, David, you know, the, the, the saints of the Old Testament, they went to a waiting place because heaven wasn't open yet. Right. So um, Psalm, when, when David says, um, I'll go to Sheol when I die and I won't be able to praise you. Psalm six. Um, he, he's he's saying that's what he's talking about 
I'm going to go to this waiting place that is shades and spirits. And, um, and, but then Jesus, when he dies, he goes and preaches to the spirits in prison, right? And those that trusted in him in the old Testament, then he takes with them. So every time in the old Testament that you see a picture of heaven, it's just angels. There's never people there. After uh, Paul, but Paul says, "When I die, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to die and be with the Lord." So you got to say that again. Oh, when, no. when, 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 sorry, it, the internet keeps acting crazy, and so it's cutting you out. But you said when Jesus dies, he goes down and preaches to the spirits. Yeah. Um, wait. So what got cut out? Did the, the talk about what, Psalm six? Yeah, I missed that part. We said Jesus dies, he goes down and speaks okay. to the spirits. Is the last thing that yeah. we caught. So um, Psalm 6, David says, uh, oh, yeah. I'm going down to Sheol if I yep. die. When Paul says, if I die, I go to be with the Lord, that's revolutionary. Because in the Old Testament, whenever um, you see pictures of heaven, pictures of the presence of God, it's, all, it's only angels. After Jesus is raised from the dead, um, we see pictures of heaven again, and now there's people there. But it's and it's a lot of people. Well, it's because the people that were the saints of the Old Testament that were waiting in Sheol, now heaven has been opened up to them as well. And so Dante knows his covenant progression, uh, and he he understands that um, Jesus opened heaven for the Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints, opened the presence of God for them. And so um, Virgil tells the story of. Jesus coming to Sheol or coming down and getting people right. And taking them up to heaven with him. Um, so he comes down and for three days and three nights, he's there preaching to the spirits in prison down there. And then he takes them with him when he goes. So that, so Dante just says, yeah, it's different now than before because now that Jesus has come, it even, you know, because he's the king of hell as well. He's even shifted around the the way that hell works. <laughs> so then there there that's kind of how we get the doctrine of purgatory ultimately. Is that is that where that's coming from? Well, and they just haven't the doctrine, what's the, the the doctrine of purgatory sort of develops um out of there out of an understand mostly out of an understanding of sanctification that, that goes awry. Right. Yeah. That, that your you can pay can your be, way out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, it eventually becomes you can pay your way out, but it starts with um, the uh, you can the your guilt can be paid for by Jesus, but the um, the effect that your sin has, you have to suffer that. So if you cause somebody a bunch of problems because of your sin, then you have to have those problems to balance out your your. Uh, forgiveness. Um, and that understanding uh, sort of develops. And out of that, then comes the question of, well, what if I didn't get it all paid off before I die? And so the doctrine of purgatory or the the myth of purgatory, I guess, is probably a better way to put it, yeah, grows, yeah. grows out of that false understanding of sanctification. Um, and then they, they're, they're trying to figure out how to answer that question. Um, there's um, in in um there's maybe one mention of something purgatory-ish in um second maccabees 
but there's not really anything even kind of purgatory-ish ever mentioned. Um, so then what you were talking about earlier, is that kind of more of Abraham's bosom kind of situation? Yeah, like Abraham's bosom. Paradise is is also what it's called. So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise has a is still a waiting zone. It's not the same thing as heaven. Um, uh, so you've got different words for it. Sheol, Hades, uh, paradise, um, Abraham's bosom. The uh, It's sometimes divided up also to Tartarus and Hades, um, okay. the Elysian fields. There's a bunch of names for kind of the, pla- the waiting place of the dead. Um, and the Bible uses Hades, Sheol, paradise, uh, Tartarus, all those words to describe it. So this is not just um, poetry, just, old world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the harrowing of hell is the idea that Jesus, when he dies, he spends three days basically going down and emptying um, Hades of all of the people that have trusted in him. And you've got different kind of different, aspects of that tradition but that's kind of the basic thing is jesus goes down and he says now that i have died to take away the distance the 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 darkness that was between us and god you and god the death um now you can come in and be directly in his presence so abraham can go be directly in god's presence after the resurrection of jesus before the resurrection of jesus there's still something in the way uh because death and sin haven't been taken care of. Now, Abraham had faith looking forward to what Jesus would do in the promises of God. He trusted in the promises of God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But the promise wasn't fulfilled yet. So we look backwards. They looked forwards. We That's what he gets at. He gets at that. He's like, that. they yeah. looked forward. That was their faith in knowing that God was something that the other um, not prophets, but some of the other poets and um, uh, philosophers didn't have. Right. Faith. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't have faith. Right. They didn't have faith and therefore they didn't have hope. And therefore they're not experiencing love for eternity. They're experiencing um, an eternal sighing of hopelessness. And it wasn't just eternity that I mean, part of the fourth those four layers is that they lived in that reality. Right. Yeah. That it, it was their present reality while they were alive, and their imagination couldn't search beyond it. Oh, that's such a great right. line. Cause, yeah, because they didn't have right. And so the um, and you see this in Hinduism, you see it in Taoism, mm. um, Buddhism. Y- you see something similar, although it's really it's pretty warped because it's a loss of self, um, a dis a disillusionment is the dis uh dissipation disappearing is the hope <laughs> so mm. in the, imagine how hopeless that is in real buddhism not in like middle-aged white woman buddhism in southern california but uh you have this uh hopelessness that is the present reality mm-hmm. and he says that's hell sneaking forward into the present from the future right there's a future hell that sneaks into us in the midst of our sin through our sin, or that's the the portal that it sneaks in. But in the same way, what we learn as we go on 
is that um, paradise actually sneaks into the present in our virtue, in our faith, in our hope, and in our love. Right? So, don't you spoil it for me yet? Don't you spoil it for me? I I gotta get there. I'm I'm slowly going. I I still I'm really so you got a poem you sent me. I want to get to it, and we we're right out of time. But I want to. I still want to think about this line. I want to ask you about this line. The weakness of humanism is falls short in the imagination of ecstasy. And what hit me with that line as I'm reading through this, this is from Sayers, um, is that when you think of humanism, humanism doesn't have any limitations. It is the ecstasy, supposedly. Right. Right? That's yeah. what's so yeah. crazy about well, so, it. So, and so this is the, you've got the secular humanism and the Christian humanism. Right. And, the, and they begin fighting for preeminence in the Renaissance. So in Dante's day, you begin getting this tug of war between so Christianity created the possibility of a secular space, right? Mm -hmm. No such thing, mm -hmm. right? So, so a secular space, meaning um, a place that Jesus in a Christian understanding is a place that Jesus rules directly, not through the church, but he, but through the other authorities that he's established. So you've got, so the home and the, uh, and the, the, the kingdom or, you know, the, the civil realm are secular spaces in the sense that they are not religious. There, there aren't sacraments at, in your house at home. You it's, it functions on, um, but God rules your home directly um, through his revealed word and through the authority structures that he established in the garden that continue to be passed on from father to father to father. Um, or if, to from head of home to head of home to head of home, because if there's no father, then the mother's the head of home. And uh, so you've got these uh, authority structures that are not ruled by the church. There's not a singular authority that rules everything. The um, you see in the, in Dante's day, the beginning of the overreach of the Pope. And there's a reason that Dante puts some of the popes in hell for that. You know, that that's part of it is they're trying to take over the secular space. Petrarch, who's a younger contemporary of Dante, has some of the most hilarious sonnets skewering the pope of his day. He just he and he's just a faithful Christian, loves the Lord, and therefore he hates this pope who has tried to take the sea of the papacy to Avignon and is trying to over overrun the secular space and all this. And so he just skewers this Pope with poetic brilliance. Um, so it, the, you know, anyone that says, Oh, the papal authority has always been respected everywhere. Just, it's just not true. Right. Um, there was the, the, the universal, the understanding of the universal authority of the Pope begins to grow um, in this context where you also have a secular humanism growing. So you've got this reactionary, uh, this reactionary understanding in the church that says as secular, as secular humanism grows and this secular space tries to push its authority into the church, that the church needs to respond by taking all the authority to itself, which is not a good solution, but it was what historically um, was attempting to happen. Uh, so uh, because of that, though, because there's this growing secular humanism, 
that says the study of humanity is a good thing, right? You can learn wisdom. You can learn virtue by studying humans, by studying the progress of history, by studying uh, the great poets of the past and the great uh, legal minds of the past that you can... um, Dante has to is trying to pull humanism back to its Christian roots and say, but without Jesus, the humanism is is all still BS, right? Like it's just there's no it it is still um, the a sub you're still in a suburb of hell, even if if you're if even if you're the best humanist there is, if you don't have faith, hope, and love. So, and part of it is too, is that the, right, the, but the imagination of what one wants and desires above all is lacking in comparison to how beautiful, how big God is to be able to really satisfy beyond that. So there's so much more to, to, so when you, if you, you think you want ecstasy and you're trying to find it in what your desires are as for instance, a single man who gets to sleep around with a bunch of women and you're right. like, what I get to do, I get to have sex with all kinds of different women from around the world. And it's like, and you right there have failed to find ecstasy. Right. Yeah. Right. Because real ecstasy is found in a man committing himself to a woman, spending his life with that one woman and learning her like one, you know, and giving all his attention to that one woman to learn her inside and out, up and down, left and right, thoughts and whims. And in that, in achieving that and giving your life to that, you find the real form of ecstasy, right? But right. Yeah. The, the, and because there, because that is, is, um, because the eternal paradise in God's presence sneaks its way into mm. the, virtues that are given to us in the law Mm. right so by living according to the law you're saying how are we going to live in paradise for all eternity right how what is that ecstasy going to look like let's start now so it it, so even so this is what's so crazy about obedience to god Mm -hmm. um faith and obedience to god brings to i love how ben merkel says this he's like you have this tendency to believe that if you keep what it is that you want instead of giving it to god that you're going to maintain that thing but instead you lose it but you find that when you give those things to god he usually gives them back to you better than even you could have imagined them to be Right. right yeah and that's what when i read this i was like in humanism we're trying that very thing we're trying to get all the things we want but in grasping for those things you lose them because the, the ecstasy isn't in those things. The ecstasy is in knowing the one who gives those things, honoring him, loving him, enjoying his righteousness, his law. And then in that, that is where all the ecstasy is. It's, here's all the things, right? Yeah. But it, but what we have tended to do is say that the problem with humanism is that they wanted, that they loved the poetry and that they loved the beauty and the music and the, and the art and rather rather than saying and what dante is saying is as soon as those things become things for their own sake you lose even the joy in those things but when those things become things through which you you seek god through which the beauty 
uh, of eternity shines through, right? Then you you don't just get those things; you get those things plus, right? But if you take try to have those things without Jesus, you don't even get those things. So Dante's playing so much here because he's understand. Man, you got. I'm starting to think poetically now. It's starting to happen. He understands because when he saw Beatrice, he's like, "I want another God who made that woman." Exactly. Well, that, but that wasn't his first reaction. Right, right. His first reaction was, Woo, oh my beautiful. gosh, <laughs> look at the curves on that thing. Right. I want to touch it, right? right, right <laughs> and she right. wouldn't shake his hand, and he melts down, right? But reflecting later, he says, actually, now that I know what really was going on is, I was trying to, I, was, I wanted Beatrice for her own sake, rather than the only thing you can want for its own sake is God. Mm-hmm. Right for his own sake is God. Uh, um, the I got to get my pronouns right. I'm, God is the only place where you got to get the pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's reflected in all of creation. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> no, it is true. No, I, I, uh, but but I used it because I was using the pronoun for thing. Right, but yeah, yeah, no, no, you can't I, use it for God. I don't yeah. know, Lord, I don't know him. Strike him down. That movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you you want um uh and so augustine spends a lot of time discussing this um in terms of of desires um in in fact what's interesting is you know aquinas picks up this conversation um there's even uh the, the and it's sort of a it's, it's a question of desire what what what's the proper nature of desire? Um, and Augustine concludes that the only thing you can desire for its own sake is God. Everything else, it, it can be good to desire it, but not for its own sake. It ha- there's, because there's nothing else that is, um, is eternally, uh, infinitely, beautiful, perfect, right? Everything else is, is, um, retains its being or holds its being in the fact that God has created it, right? So God is an uncreated, uh, God is the only uncreated, uh, because he's the only uncreated, therefore not a thing, right? He, 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 his existence is independent, um, everything else is a thing that reta- that has its existence based on God's creation. And so unless you are desiring that thing, uh, desiring through that thing for what it is um, that it, ha- how it is that it reflects God, um, you're misusing it. Right? And Dante is, he is putting even the pagan poets into that category. Mm. Right, saying and philosophers, yeah, and philosophers, and um, the mm. the philosophers of virtue, you know, Seneca, Cicero, as well as the uh, philosophers of law, the uh, um, and even even some of the great the great politicians, right, um, Caesar, right. Brutus, right. He says even them that what what it is that uh, that they. The, the reason that we can look at them and say, thank you for them, Lord, is because through them, we see the rule of Jesus more fully, more 
uh, we see mm. the the right rule of God as King um, more clearly and more fully. So it, it's a it's that poetic vision of the uh, of reality that says, "Man, this is wonderful," and it points to something so much more, right? Jason, I so I feel like. I mean, Canto 4, I feel like I'm starting to under... Between A Beginner's Guide to Dante... Okay, so remember when we started reading Dante? We started reading Dante because I'm like, I have to learn how to read poetry in order to understand and see not just the past, but also the present and the future, right? right. Um, so learning poetry for me is to be able to have better vision and to read in a way, um, in a way that holds multiple things up and then looks at it like Tony Stark does in Iron right. Man, right? Like that's what I think poetry does. It, it helps me break things apart like Tony Stark. So I can, what are you looking at? You just pulled up some, you must be, you already know where I'm going and you're grabbing I think stuff. so. I think so. <laughs> so I'm, there's this term that I have. I was like, uh, Miyagi, that thing up for me. That's that's a term of mine. You know what that comes from? Like yeah, where Daniel Russo is sitting up there painting fences, LaRusso, he's painting fences and he's buffing cars and he's sanding floors and he's getting to the point where it's like, all right, man, listen, now I'm just your slave. You're going to have to Miyagi that thing up for me so I can know that I'm learning karate here, right? Because that's, and I'm not saying that it's useless unless I do, but now that I'm able to understand kind of what Dante is getting at, how do I take that understanding of what he's getting at a Canto for and probably where he's going to go, because I don't know where he's going to go yet, and then be able to overlap and apply that to even political understanding. You know, I'm gonna get done with this show and go do a, a show on politics. And I wanna be able to make sure that I'm using the way that I'm able to read with Dante and apply that. Cause in one sense or another, Dante is actually talking political. This is him mm -hmm. coming from exile from, you know, getting kind of run out by, <laughs> by, the Pope and a few other folks. And, uh, and so he's, he's, this is a political conversation that's underneath here. Um, how do I use that currently without just saying, Oh, that's cool poetry. Cause I think there's a tendency to do kind of what universities have done, which is split apart these sciences and not show the universality of them, how they overlap with each other and how they engage with each other to be able to do life and to, to do, to understand the world better Instead, they're all separate, so we don't ever put them together. So Miyagi, that thing up for me. Put that all in together. Yeah, I I think, <laughs> and because this is this is where um, the interrelatedness of things is, um, the it has a beauty in and of itself. Yeah. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, when when somebody comes along and they say, uh, you know, I want art for art's sake. Um, my question is always like, okay, that's great. What if the art is pointing to something beyond itself? Do you want that too? Or do the, mm. is the art for art's sake, is that a way of saying, I don't actually want art, right? <laughs> I want mm -hmm. the experience of art, but I don't want art. Usually that's what people mean when they say art for art's sake. They say, what I want is a particular experience. Um, and, that, and we tend to think that's a reality. I don't think that's possible. You can't have art for art. It's not a reality. Yeah. Like, um, what the, uh, 
C.S. Lewis says you don't keep the cigarette after you've smoked it, right? You 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 can't um, the the if if it comes and it delivers something to you, you don't then say okay now I'm gonna, uh, but I'm I want to keep the cigarette. You well no you already smoked it. Um, you can't keep the cigarette after you've smoked it. Mm. And um, and that is what we that tends to be how we. Uh, how we approach art because we, the interconnectedness of all things is a, um, is something that we just have rejected out of hand. Right. We've just mm-hmm. said, I, I don't actually believe in it. So when it comes to something like politics and you say, okay, um, like th- what this shows you is you can actually have say a, a non-Christian we uh, who who gets the political virtues right. Mm. Um, it is not, we, we tend to be Gnostics when it comes to politics that says, or when it comes to most things, art, politics, everything, and say, unless you have the secret Gnostic spark of Christianity, you can't get the externals right. So I can't learn anything from you if you're not a real Christian. Uh, um, rather than saying, actually, sometimes, uh, someone who's not a Christian, they get the externals, right. That's actually sadder for them personally. Um, but I can, I can work with that. I can, I can work with them. Um, but it it gives you all sorts of possibilities to say, well, you know, there's actually another layer, right? Oh, there's actually another layer to this, um, when it comes to politics. So I'm sorry, man. It froze. In that oh no. It did. It's, you said we tend to be wondering. Gnostics. Yeah. What was, what was the you last said, thing I said? We tend to be Gnostics when it comes to politics. Okay. That was the last yeah. thing. I heard. So we tend to be Gnostics when it comes to politics, when it comes to art, when it, um, where we say, unless somebody has faith, they don't have anything to teach me. They don't have anything I can learn from them. They don't have, they can't get anything right. Cause there's a secret. There's, there's a, a secret spark of, of uh, reality or a secret spark of divinity or a secret spark of faith that they have to have before they can get anything else. Right. Um, but what, uh, but there's because of the poetic interconnectedness of things, right. You could have somebody who gets the political virtues, right. They get the political system, right. They get, they, they um, understand those things. You can learn from them. You see this in business as well, you know, um, young Christians that won't read business books that aren't written by Christians. Well, it's just kind of Gnostic, right? Business, the, the virtue business virtues are a particular kind of thing and non-Christians can have them too. There's things you can learn. You can get better at, um, and learn it from non-Christians because they're made in the image of God. They are, um, people that are putting on display some aspect of God for us. And, the political system is supposed to be we're, we're uh, what we're supposed to be doing is moving it towards a fuller and deeper reflection of the rule of God. Right. That's, that's what we want from our political system. It doesn't make sense to do that by rejecting the rule of God in our own personal lives. And a lot of Christian politicians do that as well, right? They lose their own, virtue in the, because they think we've got, we've got to get 
this place in line with what God wants, but then they lose their own virtue in the process. Or right? that's, and that's, there's a poetic irony to mm. that. <laughs> that um, there's also this idea, you know, that I was thinking about where I think we're willing to run off because someone does have the ideas. They have been good um, political leaders and I'm grateful for their, what they do and their observations to deconstruct the system, but the things that they would implement um, unintentionally would lead to this kind of um, cold, stoic, lack, Christless environment because while their observations are keen and should be taken in true consideration, they're not going to have a, a lawful, in a lot of ways, biblical lawful type of application um, to their observation. So they have one observation that's really good. Application is like, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right. That that the that um, and and we can separate that out, yeah. right? Because yeah. Yeah. the that's we don't expect. We're not look. We don't need a, a hero. We've already got one of those that came and right. did that, right? So, so we can separate it out and say, like, you know what? I really appreciate um, Trump's Middle Eastern policies and the way that he has treated women throughout his life has been terrible. And you're right. not saying, you know, you can say, like, the he, he was really great with North Korea, for example, right? Um, he he backed down. Uh, the the conflict there. We want less war, right? Like we do right. as Christians. We want less war. That's just that is the truth. Um, and so uh, to de to deescalate, you know, he, and Trump was great at deescalating conflict. He also used being rich to mistreat women for years when he was younger. We don't have to say. We don't because we don't need a hero. We don't have to say everything was great. Um, right. We can separate it out and say, you know, how do let's find another leader that does that thing over there well, um, and see if we can also find a leader that treats women better, right? Well, and I think too, you know, when it comes to just choosing leaders and picking leaders, no one has. I, people don't take the Deuteronomic standard to what a leader should be. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, like when we figure out what an elder is and how to pick an elder, um, what a, and this is just me going there. Um, husbands need to know what it's like to raise good men so that they can give those men to good women so that they know how to pick good men for their daughters. <laughs> right. Right. And so that they can then say, oh, this kind of man should be the, the type that runs his house well to be an elder, because actually the, the, the elder is crafted by the making of the home mm -hmm. and then is able to make the home, right? So <laughs> you have an elder who's taught and raised and discipled well, and then as well as someone who raises and disciples well. You don't get those two things apart from the home to doing that. And then so if we can't pick, if we can't make good men for our churches and then know what the offices are that they should fit into, then I don't know how we're going to be able to choose good leaders. I mean, those two things yeah. are running simultaneously that we have. We can't choose good elders. 
nor can we choose good leaders. And I wonder why we can't choose good leaders. It's not like one is up. This is definitely, the political side is definitely downstream from the church side. And the yeah. church side is downstream from the family side, right? Like we're not doing that well. And those two have a feedback loop. That, they all have a feedback loop, but the church and the family to me are, are super important because of the moral foundation and the biblical truths that are given to the church to disciple the family. And then that right. feeds back into the church and then it goes downstream to the culture. Well, I think that's that part, the reason that a lot of that has fallen apart. And I don't know which came first. I'd have to think about it more. But we are looking for a hero in our politics. Yes. Right. We, we, yes. We're looking for a savior. Yes. So and we need to stop doing that. Right? As Christians, we should be saying, well, I don't need a savior. I've already got one. Right. So let's, that's not, I, I remember, I think it was, I think it was a Ron Paul, um, it was a debate. I can't remember if it was Ron Paul or if it was Rand Paul, one of them, that it was in one of the debates and somebody said, what are you going to do to solve this particular problem? And one person, one of the candidates said this, another, and they got to them and said, that's not the president's job. That was Ron, I believe. Was, yeah, he said, um, the constitution specifically tells the president that that's somebody else's job. And so I would do nothing as the president. And then he just stepped back. <laughs> I remember like, the, I remember watching that debate. Yeah. I remember that watching was, You are not going to win. And yep. you just won me over. <laughs> well, I did. I, I did like, and next, who's next? <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't have even the, you know, this is me. I didn't have the faculties to know that that's the guy that we all should have voted for. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that, that's he, that he, if, if he had been put forward, I would have voted Republican for the first time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, um, but the fact that nobody could see that he actually just said, you know, that's a legal question and you're asking me to do something illegal. I don't do illegal things was, um, it, it showed, I think, the bankruptcy of a lot of what was what was what's going on in politics in general, because there's nobody else that would say, oh, I don't do illegal things. Right. No, he 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 indicted everybody on the stage left and right of him. Yeah. Which was like, Beautiful. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, everybody was like, yeah, he ain't going nowhere. But <laughs> that was that was the kindness of God to give us somebody like that. And, and we just said, Lord, we don't want that. Give us a right. king. Yeah, we're like, oh, let's take Joshua and throw him down the well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, so um but I, but I think that when we start to see how everything's connected, then we realize the way we're raising our kids is that that's how we solve this political problem. When we go to worship on Sunday, that's how we solve this political problem. Right. We we come to the Lord's Supper with faith and say, you've you've laid out a um, a feast for me in the in the midst of my enemies. Uh, and let's and but it's because you have green pastures for us. Right. So that we we enter into God's presence with hope, um, saying, I don't I don't have to trust in my politicians and it might go terribly wrong um, right now. Uh, I mean, I, when you looked at, at the last election and you think those are the two best candidates that we could come up with in the country, man, we're in trouble. 
Yeah, it was hell. Yeah, right. Right. It was it was <laughs> it was hell. It's and, it's Dante and all over. It 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 is. But we but um there's we don't have anyone we we have very few people giving the kind of education to their own children that would raise up a great leader for the next generation. Yeah. So now, we shouldn't yeah. be surprised that we're not getting great leaders. But I think that we've moved, you know what, Jason, I'm not even thinking, uh, I mean, I, I am, you know, I, I was thinking about this before. Um, Black America a long time ago knew that they needed um, to do certain things to be able to open up the doors broader down the road, right? So they, well, I can't read. My kids are going to read. I can't do science. My kids are going to do science. I can't get on the golf course, but my kid's going to get on the golf course. I don't, not allowed to play tennis, but my daughters are going to play tennis. Uh, you know, like we started doing these these things where we put our kids through a certain type of education and training so that they would be the ones, right? And we raise them that way. I am thinking like, I'm not, I'm not even thinking about politics and those things. I'm thinking about, I want my kids to be a good father and a good wife. And I'm defining those things pretty like, okay, what does a good father do? Okay, he nurtures, educates, he disciples, you know, um, he creates opportunity, leave up inheritance, all those. I'm thinking of all those things. I'm like, okay, right. these, are, these are things that are broken in my system. How can I, um, it, it, how can I get there? And I'm realizing that the, 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 what it takes to get there is much larger than I have the ability to do. And the weight of that is making me cry out to God for help and asking God for faith. Like, Lord, this is insurmountable. I cannot obtain this. What my kids need to face the future right now and what's coming at them, I don't have the ability to give them. I'm not educated like that. And so I need, I'm having, I'm just crying out to God for faith. And the thing that's happening, Jason, that has that is blowing my mind is this pitter patter of of of, of um education that's coming my way. This pitter patter of of plotting little things. It's not a lot. It's, oh, I have this much time to read, that much time to engage, this much time for family worship, you know, this much time to talk with my kids. And I'm finding out that it has nothing to do with climbing this mountain at one time, but more to do with these moments of not missing them. The 10 minutes here, the five minutes there, the 15 minutes of reading, the four minutes of talking, the three minutes of prayer, Right. And and then having these things on rotation and, and say, okay, Lord, if I, because this is what's killing me, this book by faith is so good for me because it's like, <clears throat> uh, what faith, when what faith does is believe that God is going to do this thing. And then you operate in that you believe you actually believe. So you, you ask God to help you believe, and then you ask God for the moves to be able to do it. And then you just do little bits and little bits and little bits and all these little bits start adding up. And I haven't begun to say I see a whole lot of adding up, but where I had zero, I'm like, oh, I got four pennies. <laughs> right. Look at God. 
oh, snap, I'm going to keep on being faithful. I'm ask God for some more faith and I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep using these 10 minutes, these five minutes and these fragmented moments and try and just bring them together, asking the Holy Spirit to use my two fish and five loaves so that it would become something massive that blesses his people. And so, and I'm saying all that to say that the huge picture of what we are facing when we, what I think you mean when you say we want a hero is we want something else huge to be able to face this thing huge because right. you can't see that faith is actually small. It doesn't seem significant. And God uses things like that over time to conquer the big, massive giants, you know? Um, and so we want, you know, it's, it's just like, um, was it uh, Haman who, the, who is like, if he would have asked you to do, some magnificent thing. Would you not have done the magnificent thing? But here he is. He tells you to go dip in Jordan seven times and you don't want to go do that. And yeah. it's, that's how I feel like this whole thing has been this, this whole new culture and world that we're at. It's like, we want this huge hero that has all this shiny armor. And it's like, but are you being faithful in your home with the small things God has given you? How do you do your time? What effort are you giving in the raising of your children every day, each moment that you have, significant or insignificant, how are you using that to show forth the kind of world that we live in that brings glory to God so that that becomes a total and full human? Anyway, I'm rambling. Go ahead. No, that's a I, that's exactly that's exactly it. I mean, you know, I, you there's a. Uh, um, sidewalk by my house that uh, has been torn to shreds by uh, weeds, right? By little mm. plants, just growing little tiny seeds that get into the cracks and they grow up. And next thing you know, um, this concrete has been just torn up to bits by just the faithful <laughs> pressure of small plants, you know, um, and I think that's, that's the church is it when, what, how do we overcome the, the concrete of secularism seeds, man, you just plant the seeds. Concrete doesn't have a chance. Get, if you've got, if you've got seeds and time, there's nothing that stands a chance. I'm still in that. That's good. Uh, we never got to this poem. <laughs> no, we didn't. No, we'll save it for next time. Cause it's a little, it's a little, it's a little crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's a good one to start with because it's, it's in, it's a, pre, it's a contemporary poem. So there's no, you know, words that are. He's just using contemporary words, and but it's very poetic. And I think it's, it's a, I picked it because it's a, for. Uh, Canto four has a similar point as Canto. Four, oh, so. really? Oh, so then we'll start with this, and then we'll move, and then we'll move on to. There's a lot in Canto four. Canto four. I I need to meditate on that a little more. Like that was it was really good. So yeah, maybe it's we'll, really. Ch it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's or it's convicting for me when I read it. I'm like, oh yeah. Especially somebody that's always trying to keep reading and learning, and you know, you think. Yeah, but the faith, hope, and love without that, all the learning is just sighing. Yeah. Yeah, I'll keep, yeah, oh, sighing. Yep. 
Well, I'm in the process of learning how to learn. So I, I, I see that. And that's actually one of the things I think charismatic folk who came from, I come from the holiness folks were always concerned about was you got all that knowledge and no Jesus. Right. And that's, they, a, that's a real thing. It is. And they were yeah. more concerned about, I'd rather have a little bit, a little bit of thing that about, I know and know that thing really well about Jesus. And I, that's yeah. what some of the old folks, I, I envy them because they were right about that. I wish that they took that application and became specialists all through all of them, but they would know one little thing and they would, but they would they know mean, yeah. that thing well. So, yeah, Gresham Machen talked about meeting Billy Sunday. Um, Billy Sunday, he's kind of crazy evangelist and he used to, he, he was a professional baseball player turned evangelist, got saved and he, he would stand on the, on the floor and like jump up and stand on the pulpit while he preached and things. And, and, uh, and Machen was, a he's a very subdued Presbyterian and, but he met Billy Sunday and, um, and he said, I'd rather have that than all of what I've got back here in the Presbyterian church. Cause that man loves mm-hmm. Jesus. And, and he's like, so you meet him and you're like, oh yeah, we're brothers. He and we have the same loves, the same faith, the same hopes. Um, and he said, you've got all of this scholarship over here without the fire. So I'd rather have the fire and <laughs> no scholarship. Mm-hmm. All right, bro. We'll, um, this is good. I appreciate it. This is good stuff. And we got to figure out this uh, internet problem. I don't know if it's me or. Yeah, I don't know why. I got you paused again just now, too. I don't know what it is. I know we're all plugged in over here. We're doing 500 up and down. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm going right. to actually go check my speeds and stuff right now. But all right. Let, let me know what you get. All, all right, right, brother. We'll talk soon. See ya. Thanks, Jason. Bye.